coming up next, Lit Crit Part 2. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Hours, and your humble and obedient host. That's Brandon Chastain right there, your scholar who's a baller of reading. And Brandon, it's the month of Spooktober. It sure is. But we're not getting to scary stories yet. Well, no, but we are well, going to get to some scary thoughts. Yeah, some scary <laughs> ideologies. Oh man. Idiot-ologies. The Panopticon's pretty scary. Foucault. Oh, he's, yeah. He's a subcategory of post-structuralism. When my wife married me, she threw away all her Foucault books. Mm-hmm. And I think it was due to the influence of one Brandon Chastine. Well, yeah. look at that. <laughs> a very handsome and uh, wonderful and thoughtful fellow who talked to her, I think, uh, gave her a bit of a dressing down regarding the usefulness of Foucault. We still have some Derrida in our house. Um, as one does. As one does. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't have a little Derrida? You know, every the, the well-stocked library <laughs> yeah. and can, contains a little of old J. Well, JD. Just so people can kind of know the secret contradiction in my soul, I was wondering, um, like, uh, why didn't you guys offer those to me? Your, your before the, you threw those books away. Why didn't you? You know, know I, 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 I did not personally oversee the removal of Foucault from our joined in wedlock library. I assume. My, because usually when my wife has a book that needs a halfway home, you're the man to talk to because yep. you kind of like to take in lost books and nurture and rehabilitate them. That just didn't happen, I think, because you'd convinced her so much that Foucault was worthless that it probably just didn't cross her mind that you'd want it. Yeah. Actually, I have a lot of Foucault anyways. I didn't need them. <laughs> you, you didn't need it. <laughs> yeah. The hypocrite's never thrown out his Foucault. <laughs> I think the closest thing we have to Foucault is that Umberto Echo book, Foucault's Pendulum. You have the name on a book. We've got the name Foucault on a book. Yeah. Foucault's interesting, but Foucault was pretty perverse too. That's the problem with Foucault. Uh, that's the problem with a lot of that stuff. Yeah, the problem with a lot of these things we'll be talking about today, potentially other days. We'll see. Yeah, I think this will be go. our last episode of this series because... We need to get to horror stories and then into 1984. We got a lot of booking to get through this year, and we need to get Jake back on the show. If, if we don't get it all covered today, we'll come back to it sometime very soon. Fair enough? Sounds good. I think, I think we can do it, Nathan. All right, let's do it. All right. Okay, so I think we ended in the 19th... Yeah, the 19th? Me. In the 19th century. Yeah. Last time we'd kind of gotten up to the modern era. If I'm not mistaken, and yeah. have we even said what we're doing? If anybody doesn't know, we took a couple of weeks off to talk about teaching literature, but before that, we had done part one of literary theory, which you can go listen to and hear about everything that kind of led up to the modern era. Brandon gave us a nice overview of that, and today he is going to lead us through the 20th century, essentially, yep. and maybe he'll even use the phrase "locus of meaning." Maybe I will. Actually, I wasn't planning on it, Nathan. Do you want to use that? <laughs> I think one of us should. Yeah? 
Well, you go ahead. What do you mean by locus of meaning? Where the meaning in the text? Will you at least say the phrase the text? Yeah. A number of times? The te- I will say the text pretty much all the time. Okay, cool. I guess what I mean by the locus of meaning for anybody who doesn't know is where does the meaning lie in the text? Does it lie with the text itself? Does it lie in the reader's response to the text, the way that you or I feel about the text, what we bring to it? Or does it lie in larger cultural or literary systems that inform the text? These are the three different places we could find the locus of meaning. Yeah, and as we talked last time, I mean, literary theory really starts way back with the Greeks, with Plato. and. Even he, so one of the prominent theories we'll be talking about is semiotics or Mm -hmm. structuralism. I'm super excited about that. Which is dealing with the signifier and the signified Mm. and structures of meaning and laying versus parole and all that stuff that structuralism deals with. He, Plato, was actually concerned with things like that too, with do words actually represent the forms or the forms themselves something larger than the words? Like there's no inherent meaning, according to Plato, etymologically between the words that we use and the things that they describe. Right. That's one of the foundations of literary theory is you're trying to determine the relationship between what's described and the words that describe it. And is there any unity of meaning there? This will be the primary question of deconstruction, for example, when it, the, the shift turns away from the text. Instead, it's towards the reader that there can never be a complete exchange of information that doesn't have some degree of slippage between the reader and the writer and stuff like that. And so all this to say the real question of literary theory is an epistemological one. How do we know anything about the world? And at first, you know, it started as just about books. We traced the history of how it developed in the Middle Ages and then the Renaissance and stuff like in the 1800s with kind of Matthew Arnold and those guys. When we get to the 1900s and you have like a, a unified literary school of thought, you begin to have ways of understanding literature develop. So one of the foundational figures in the early 1900s would be F.R. Levis, who even today people talk about the Levis British school of, or the, the, liter, the Levis school of theory. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who kind of gives us these ideas of the canon, of um, the, the importance of textual criticism. And so with Levis, it was about a close reading of the text to in, interrogate. Uh, I'm going to yes. use a lot of theories, a lot of literary theory terms, guys. To interrogate, which just means to look at the bits and pieces of it through analysis and then interpret those things. But you're interrogating the meaning of the text. Every time we say something like interrogate the text, we kind of give it a little sarcastic spin. Maybe we should position ourselves here so that uh, people know how to interrogate the meaning of this podcast. Yeah. Are we primarily, Brandon, talking about stuff that's good today, stuff that's bad, or stuff that are neutral tools that can be used, good or bad. Or maybe that depends on the thing we're talking about, because we're going to talk about a number of things. But is this something that we as Christians should disdain all this kind of stuff? No, I don't think that we should disdain all of it. But it does. a lot of this does have roots in things that we should disdain. So a lot of literary criticism has its roots in like the high criticism, the new sorts of, uh, I think that's what it was called, like the high criticism that, of the German schools that approach the Bible as a text that could be compared to other religious texts mm-hmm. and how that could allow you to re-understand and reinterpret the Bible. And so it just treated the Bible as another source that you could interrogate. Right. And so there are dangers to this sort of, these sorts of theories, but there is a lot of usefulness to it as well. I mean, so yeah, it, it's a double-edged sword. I think what you'll kind of see, uh, listener, if you pay close attention, is that we on the booking use all of these 
methods on any given episode. It's just we don't take them to the atheistic extremes that many people do. Yeah. And so really literary theory is just interested in examining how do we go about interpreting and understanding and appreciating literary and the literary artifacts. There's a word for you. Mm -hmm. Artifacts in the first place. That's what theory does. And it's looking so unlike, so, you know, you'll have practices of uh, science and all these other things that you can go and do, but then philosophy tries to take a step back and understand the broad range of knowledge and stuff that underlies everything. Literary theory takes all of literature and in some cases today even tries to argue that literary theory is culturally more important than philosophy because mm. everything's a text. You get that through semiotics too. Yeah. yeah. Everything becomes text. Everything's a sign. Yeah. If everything becomes a sign, everything becomes a signified, then learning how to read those and understanding the structures that underlie things becomes just as important as philosophy. Um, literary theory does, and not so much anymore, but especially towards the end of the 19, uh, 19, the 18th, the 1900s, the 20th century right. become like a predominant force in the academy. So- all that to say, it's important. Anybody who goes to college, it's important. A lot of these things, since it just deals with how you interpret a book in the first place, they're important and they're useful. Would I encourage that anybody give their life to literary theory? That's an interesting, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe if you can do it without getting burned, but. I think so much of it does end up becoming the trees that we can't see the forest for. Yeah, you know, I mean, we all like to make fun of deconstructionist test texts that have moved so far away from having anything to do with the text itself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember reading an academic piece or, or, or seeing one where the woman began with a Jane Austen novel, I think it was, and then begun, began talking about the sexual fantasies that it aroused in her. Yeah. And, you know, it was one or two steps of some academic theory. And then suddenly she was just making these wild claims based on her own personal feelings that didn't have anything to do with the artifact itself. Yeah. And that's what I often see with critter, uh, critical theory, literary theory is that you'll lose any enjoyment of the book and it just becomes about the thought. It's like, it's a brand of philosophy. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think of critical th or th literary theory as like philosophy light. Right. A lot of philosophers make fun of literary theorists. And so you have that kind of war between the literary theorists and the philosophers, which is just carrying on the war between like Plato and the poets, right? But I think part of it is legitimate because with literary theory, you do kind of just lose the taste for the book mm -hmm. and out because you're trying to explain it. And so while, while it's interesting, it'd be, it'd be fascinating to talk about these things often, like even in grad school, I would think, is this really, like, this is fun to think about to mm -hmm. an extent, but I would much rather just be reading the book right? and just trying to interpret what I think about it or th theories of why I think about it. Now, we, we'll talk about as we go through each of these, what it means and like, like, what does this interpretation mean and how do you use it? And they do have implications, especially with more recent stuff like culture, cultural studies and gender studies and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Well, let's get to it. Uh, one of the things that you see, so just, I guess, just to take a step back then with Levis, he was kind of this early, before we really had T.S. Eliot and his influence with, well, two things. You had Russian formalism, and then you also had the new criticism coming from Eliot, T.S. Eliot. You had scholars, professors in the academy who were concerned about preserving uh, literature as the body of texts that can improve your mind, um, as the body of texts that are beautiful and preserve what is the highest achievement in Western tradition. And so this is when you would begin to see things like the canon come into existence. 
you know, which is just basically what the books that everybody who has an education, who is smart should read the mm -hmm. canon. And some, you have still some theorists and literary critics who kind of fall into that camp. Harold Bloom was a little bit of that. Yeah. And he just recently died, but a major Harvard professor. They would also be concerned with kind of broader questions of like, why do we enjoy literature in the first place? What is literature? So Levis would have been one of these major figures. So as we go through this, I'll also try to give some names that people might want to go and examine further. Or Dig get, deeper. Yeah, but, but, and he would have just writ, written books like on authors and their works, maybe examined a poem here and there. But it wouldn't be until really with formalism and with T.S. Eliot that you would get kind of traditional criticism as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Gets to move into that. Formalism was a school of thought that was uh, founded in Russia in the early 1900s, and its major proponents were Roman Jakobson, and, but also the major one was Victor, I have his name here because it's hard to pronounce, Victor Sklovsky. They would be ones who were very concerned with just uh, kind of a scientific approach towards literature. And so they wanted to take the literary text and analyze it for things like motifs, techniques, literary techniques, uh, other things that might produce the literary work. And they were just, so like you said earlier, you're, we're concerned with either the text in and of itself, because mm -hmm. you said, what was the term you uh, used? The locus the loc of meaning. The locus of meaning. For them, the locus of meaning is the text. Mm -hmm. The locus of meaning is the book, is the thing that you're analyzing. And if you analyze that and you take a scientific approach to it, you compare it to other texts, you can produce a schematic, a formalist approach to understanding the, the artifact. So that would, that, would, that would be very heavily influential in later criticism. Formalism would become, in later years, when it gets mixed with a little bit of language theory called semiotics, it would become what we know as structuralism today. Mm -hmm. um, so that's formalism. Around the same time as formalism, you have what was called the new criticism, and this was taking ideas kind of ideas by T.S. Eliot. He would have never looked at himself as a new critic. But when Eliot was hungry, before he became a poet, he wrote a lot of essays, not realizing that he was going to change the literary world in Europe and or in England and America. So he wrote his essay on John Donne and the Metaphysics, where he talked about the uh, dissociation of sensibility. But his most important theory came with tradition and the individual talent, where he talked about how the poet is kind of a, he used that weird chemical an analogy, but how the, the poet is a channel for all of tradition. So the poet mm -hmm. needs to have a wide knowledge of all tradition and also then changes tradition by his existence within tradition as well. Right. So in other words, it's not so much about the personality of the poet, but his knowledge of literary history and then his allowing himself to be the channel of sensibilities from his time and sensibilities from the past joining together in this kind of cohesion that becomes the poem. And so if that's the case, then we don't care about historical context, really. We care about the motifs, the traditions that produce a poem. In other words, we care about the things that make a poem a poem, mm -hmm. the literariness of it. We don't care about the poet's identity outside of the sensibility that merged itself with the poem. So we don't really care about biography or anything like that. And so with new criticism, what they're concerned with is just analyzing the poem itself. It would have been a response to what like what is what is this what is this pushing against exactly oh uh, well this would have pushed against biographical understandings mm -hmm. of literature that it's important to understand the biography of the author it would have pushed against the a social understanding and reading of literature that it's important to understand its historical context instead all that matters is 
you bringing to the poem a knowledge of how poetry works traditionally and then using that to interpret and understand the poem. Mm-hmm. Because the poem is the production of a poet who's highly skilled and, cr- and knowledgeable, allowing himself to be the medium of a production of an art, of a, of a perfect aesthetic device. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, but in a sense, this still is heavily influential today in the classroom. I mean, most people in college, when you read a poem, you're approaching it this way. The the, the teacher's just asking, okay, like, what are the devices that are working here? Mm-hmm. Is there irony? Is there... So things like and a concern with irony, a concern with uh, metaphor, a concern with image, a concern with rhythm and meter, things like that. Those are very new critical mm-hmm. ideas and new critical obsessions. And so if you've ever had a professor, and even I kind of teach poetry this way, I'm very, I've been influenced by the new critics because mm-hmm. Robert Penn Warren was a new critic. When they approach, it's a useful way to understand the po- poem, right? Uh, you don't really care what the poet thinks necessarily at first. I don't agree with them fundamentally. I still think that there's an interaction between the, the artist's personality and yours. Right. Every time we review another Shakespeare play on the booking and we say, well, Shakespeare did it this way, but he could have done it this way. And I wonder why he did it that way. We're actually kicking against this a little bit. We're saying it's not just a perfect scientific artifact that you can examine as if it's this inevitable gemstone. This is a living thing made by a person with flaws and weaknesses and ideas. And you have to bring some of that into it too. Yeah. And so new criticism. So here's a useful definition right here or a thing. I'll just read this real fast. New criticism aimed at bringing a greater intellectual rigor to literary studies, confining itself to careful scrutiny of the text alone and the formal structures of paradox, ambiguity, irony, metaphor, among others. So that's one of the things, the lasting influences also of new criticism is that you see like when you think of like the high and lofty English professors of the 1900s, it's because they were these new critics who, you know, they would know every poetic device. They would know every possible literary reference and all these allusions and all the ways that tradition met within this one poem, this vast understanding of literary history, all these things that meet in the great professors that you, well, maybe you don't think of them, but mm-hmm. uh, like C.S. Lewis, even to right. an extent, like these, these guys who would have been the teachers of the 1900s, these are all heavily influenced by the new critical approach to literature. And so that kind of intimidating personality of the professor who just knows everything and can just sit and unwrap this one poem and its whole historical place traditionally and also all the ways it's working and the devices it's mm. using. That's that's kind of the new critical way of understanding a poem. But notice there is still <clears throat> inherent meaning in the poem. When we say we're not examining the biography and stuff like that, we're not talking about what would happen later with death of the author and all that sort of thing. No. Where it's just like, actually it might not mean anything or actually it means what I want it to mean. The, the, the locus of meaning rests with me, the reader. There is a, a text and this text has meaning. Yeah. I think it's, that's a helpful, the locus of meaning is a helpful kind of guide through this. So yeah, locus of meaning is still with the text. You're just trying to unwrap it. Mm-hmm. as part of your critical responsibility. So new criticism also um, was very closely attached to the agrarian movement, to the Southern agrarians at the time, but they were all concerned about um, uh, the humanizing ability of literature. In other words, so like if you read Penn Warren's Understanding Poetry, what he, he's fighting against science and he's fighting against like just the cold death of industrialization 
in the way that it just kind of kills our affections. And so they saw poetry as a means to offset that. And so a real deep understanding of a poem, a, a real appreciation of the way it works could actually save your soul. That's what they would have argued. And that's what they would have seen as being true. So yeah, so they saw, they didn't just see this as like a, a snooty goal or aim of theirs to just like exclude everybody else from understanding a poem. They actually wanted to teach students how to appreciate poems in the right way through kind of this rigor and so that they could really fully understand and fight the kind of numbing effects of modern industrialization. Yeah, as you've, as you've talked about many, many times on the bookening, many of these men, Elliot included, were disappointed by the rest of life, by modernization, by industry, by World War I when it hit. And so they ended up just putting their faith in art and in literature. Yeah. And so I don't think it's, so you, it's often easy to think of like new criticism or formalism as kind of a cold approach to literature, but they actually did have a goal that was not cold. It was very warm and heated. And, and what they were aiming at was not at all the way that it looks like the cold dissection of things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so closely related then to that goal is the ideas of like the Marxist and the, the Marxist ideologies. So right around the same time that you had new criticism, you had other people who were using Marxist beliefs to also look at texts. And so, oh, by the way, some of the important new critics would have been Cleanth Brooks, John Crow Ransom, Robert Penn Warren, Wimsatt. I.A. Richards was kind of an early proponent. He's kind of his own little outlier, but still, those would have been some of the major names, and you can go and look them up if you want not you, but other people. Oh, yeah. I mean, Fine, you, Brandon, I, I will. You can too, <laughs> if you want to. The reason I'm going to just quickly talk about Marxist philosophy is because once we get to structuralism, then post-structuralism and, and deconstruction, the new historicism is going to take kind of post-structuralist and Marxist ideologies and combine them mm -hmm. into a way of understanding literature. Well, I think some people would even argue, and we don't have to tease this out if we don't want to, that people like Marx, people like Sigmund Freud, were proto-structuralists, actually, because they're looking at structures that undergird society, that undergird your conscious mind, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, I mean, that's, yeah, because we're going to be moving into structuralism anyways next. So maybe we should t talk about structuralism and then move backwards and show how Marxism, because I think people know what we mean when we talk about Marxism and Freud, right? Yeah, I think so. So Marxism would be the way that it was adapted into literary, literary criticism, you especially saw this was like German and R Russian critics. So not necessarily German, I think it was Hungarian, but George Lukács was one of the early Marxist philosophers, Marxist theorists. One of my favorite theorists is actually Walter Benjamin. I've mm -hmm. mentioned him before. Yeah. He was a Marxist theorist and they were called the Frankfurt. Well, you had the Frankfurt School of Philosophers, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't think Benjamin would not have been part of that, but Lukács was. Say what? Lukács was. Yeah, and also, but Theodora Adorno would have been the most important. And they were more concerned about cultural production. But what they were concerned about is the way that the proletariat, the ruling class, uses mo means of production to control the working class. Mm -hmm. So Marx looks back through history and looks forward to Is the his... proletariat the ruling class? Yeah, the, well, yeah. no. Oh, I always get this confused too. The proletariat's the working class. Yeah, the yeah. proletariat are the good guys, the bourgeoisie. Bourgeois, the bourgeoisie. bourgeoisie, yeah. Yeah, so Marx believed in something called dialectical materialism, which is that there are these two opposing 
forces. And this is how you understand the entire sweep of history. And I don't know why Marx believed this besides he decided he believed it. And then he looked back. Well, he was influenced by Hegel and Hegel had his dialectic theory of philosophy, right? The thesis and the end, the antithesis joining in a synthesis. There you go. Now I do know why he believed that. So he looks back through history and he sees these two forces butting heads and it's the force of the oppressor and the oppressed, the working man and the slave driver, whatever, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. I think I mixed up my parallelism there, (laughs) but I think people know what I'm talking about. And so he sees this through all of history and he wants to bring it to its natural end. He actually sees an evolution towards a perfect utopian. Which would be the synthesis. Right. So Uh, Exactly. And so then the Frankfurt School wants to take all of these ideas and apply them not just to political uprising or political theory, but to culture. Yeah. And so their most important contribution, which is still a very useful way of thinking and would influence guys like Foucault, was their interrogating Mm -hmm. of the production of the locus of meaning. (laughs) interrogating of the production of the locus of meaning as being one of ideologies that Mm -hmm. the state produces ideologies and we just did we're we haven't done it yet but we just recorded 1984 our take on it and that's very much concerned with this sort of idea in other words how does the ruling classes use art use the even the, the modes that we have to reason with to think as a means of control right like I said, some of this is baloney, right? Some of this isn't useful, but you can't argue that there are ways that this happens. I mean, just look at our modern politics, the way that our government has quickly seized on the means of Twitter, Facebook, things like that as ways to produce their own ideologies. Right. And to, I mean, this, this is the Frankfurt School, right? That mm-hmm. is. Think also the way that Netflix has become very politicized. Mm -hmm. That's the Frankfurt School. They are producing the sort of art that the left wants to have, Mm -hmm. right? So, and which then shapes our tastes, shapes our understanding of the world. And so that's what the Frankfurt School was doing. They were examining things like jazz. And um, so some of the, even the artists at the time, like Bertolt Brecht and stuff, they would have been trying to push against this, but they were looking at the theater and movie, like Hollywood, Mm -hmm. Right. Think about Hollywood and the starlets. I think in a recent episode of something we talked about Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an episode that's coming up for people yeah. that are listening. It's in our wonderful uh, Halloween review of the girl with hungry eyes. Yeah. And yeah. So, but so that fits into this as well, how they would use things like pornography mm-hmm. and the sexual identity of the starlet to still control the people. And so there was a, there was a flavor of freedom to our art, but was actually allowed and controlled by the ideologies of the state, right? Mm-hmm. And so for them, that, the locus of meaning rested with who can, has the power to control and produce these and what they'd be interested in were, were those places where the possibility of resistance. Right. So you can trace all of, if, if, you're, if you've been hearing about critical theory and intersectionality, and all these buzzwords surrounding Black Lives Matter and all this stuff. It comes directly from the Frankfurt School. Yeah, and so... I mean, didn't Lukács write the book Critical Theory? Isn't that... Yeah, yeah. that's him. <clears throat> so Adorno and Lukács, they were like the big guys, and they're still read today. So yeah, even though that brand, like Marxist thinking, is kind of not what people call it anymore, it still has like a heavy shadow over not just the academy, but over like our culture. Mm-hmm. Like the way that we think about things. A lot of people think about things through this lens. 
And largely, a lot of it's true. I think that the issues with it is they really overestimate how much authority these ruling classes have to shape our tastes. Well, an example from the booketing that we have to deal with every year. Every year we read another Jane Austen novel, and then every year we have to engage with the idea that the you know the locust of, of meaning i just call it i just said the locust the, the locust of meaning <laughs> descends upon us yeah, the locust of meaning is in the oppressors and the oppressed in a jane austen novel you know like uh, there's the ruling class the what are they called the landowners yep. and the main thing to get out of a jane austen novel is that a woman is fighting against the landowners the you know the material oppressors and the sexual oppressors men and she's making her way in society and is it okay to bring some of that thinking to jane austen in some small way i mean is that there was jane austen aware of class was she aware of sex was she aware of power structures yeah of course she was was that her intention in writing those novels primarily and is is it the main thing that we should get out of them no yep and but they would argue but they would argue that it is, right? Right. And then who cares what she thinks, what we care about? And that's, again, where this debate. So I think that, Nathan, you've provided us a very, so I was going to go with epistemology, but I think locus of meaning is more useful for mm-hmm. people. And that's where the real fight is, is like, where do we place our interpreted importance? Mm-hmm. For them, who gives a crap about Jane Austen, right? right? What we care about are the things that produced the um, society Mm-hmm. that would allow for her to write and then to tease out the way that she was shaped by ideology mm-hmm. of the ruling class and then those ways that she resisted, whether aware or not. Like maybe she wasn't a Mary Shelley out there like pulling her bonnet off on top of people's graves. Right. Right. But <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just her bonnet. <laughs> yes. But, you know, she still might have been resisting somehow. And so that's what they're really interested in looking at is the resistance because everything's a, a, a balance of forces. It's those two forces you talked about mm-hmm. and the resistances that art allows for culturally to push us towards the utopia of the future. Mm-hmm. So, well, and so th- this is some of the danger that Brandon was talking about earlier because you get so wrapped up in that stuff. Suddenly you can't see the beautiful artifact, the humor, the storytelling, the good, the goodness, the richness of what Jane Austen was doing in her novel. And you can focus a little bit more on what Jane was doing or a little bit more on the text itself. I don't really care, but you should have the humility to submit yourself to looking at what was actually intentionally put there. Whereas these people get so spun off into these political theories and power structures that they actually don't care about the text anymore. Your flashlight's on. And so, and that, that is where my problem with this theory lies. One, it's reductive. It just reduces everything to this struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just completely unfair to the human experience. Right. That's been my argument against Marxists ever since when I still was kind of a Marxist myself. Right. That's what made me uneasy. It's like, that doesn't completely fit with everything. Like, I don't think you can reduce everything to this. You look back through history. You can't reduce serfs and lords to that. I mean, it's more complicated. You can't reduce empires and peasants. I mean- there's just so much more going on. I mean, as a yeah. Christian, there's sin, there's redemption. You exactly. know, like, we have it, some basic structures that we see in things. We happen to be correct. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the Christian response. There is that you miss the whole other spiritual element that's really lying under 
you know, forces of power and then also the corruption outside of the forces of power. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's depraved, sure. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with powers. They're a part of it. And it's it's important to see where that is because I do think that, I won't get too political about it, you know, but I do think Marxists have some helpful things to point out to their capitalist brothers, mm-hmm. right? That are dangers of the capital. There mm-hmm. were reasons that Marxism needed to come out in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's not like every Marxist is a horrible, awful pig. Right. They had useful things to point out, like... Power tends to corrupt. Yep. People with lots of money can be selfish and yeah. can exploit yeah. people with less money. And it's only in a capitalist society that you're going to get something as arguably wonderful in its creative power, but also as corrupting as Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Right? You d- that's just true. And that's... Uh, and these guys are the ones that pointed that out. Mm-hmm. And they had a useful framework for seeing that. But my point is that to reduce everything to that is very reductive and is useful when applied to where it's actually useful. Otherwise, it really has nothing useful to add to life because it just makes everything political. Mm -hmm. And that is my other problem with Marxist thinking is that it politicizes everything. So everything becomes political. And that's what you see in the academy today is you can't have a graduate school class anymore or, uh, you know, a dissertation or anything like that. Like, you know, I've, I'm beating my head against trying to find a way to enter into the conversation now because mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm just not interested in, in what these people talk about. But everybody wants to talk about politics. That's, mm-hmm. er, that's, that's it. Everything has to be reduced to some political ramification. And um, I'm just, I'm just, I just want to go back to leave us and those guys. Why can't right. we just talk about this book is pretty? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> But it is so boring to go to Shakespeare and only find class struggles, to go to Austin and only find sex struggles. It's like there's a richness and a vitality to life and to human behavior that's actually what these novelists and these playwrights captured. And it is, you've used the word a couple of times now, it is entirely reductionist. And yeah, that's what makes me hate it. Yep. Me too. Even though I do see some usefulness in it, mm. I just, I still hate it. All right. So we got that. Yep. Now we're ready to move on to like the big daddy of literary theory. Like, so we've talked a little bit about formalism, but and this is where we need to take a step back and talk about, I mentioned the important names. I, I would recommend <clears throat> Walter Benjamin's essay on both translation and um, on his library there. He, he was great. I do like Walter Benjamin, but now structuralism, we're going to talk about structuralism. Big daddy structuralism. And this is a profoundly influential, I mean, deconstruction, all these things that we think of today. Like deconstruction is only a subcategory of post-structuralism, which is just a response to structuralism. Well, here's my teaser for structuralism. You use it every day. If you like to argue with people about movies, if you find yourself talking about the hero's journey and Star Wars or something, if you like to compare genres and things like that, that is structuralism. Yeah, I mean- all the guys who are kind of prominent theorists today, like, you know, Northrop Fry, Chomsky, all these guys, they came out of structuralism. Mm-hmm. So, or our response to it. And so the guy who founded it and was profoundly influential on so many people was Ferdinand Saussure, who was a, I think a Swiss theorist. Yeah, a linguist. He was a, ly- a linguist who, as is in the name of his job, studied languages. And what he posited was that the best way to understand a language is not necessarily in like the day-to-day meaning of words, 
but in the broader structures that lie behind them. And so he came up with the idea of the signifier and the signified. The signifier is the word, the signified what it signifies, the thing that it's signifying. So there's the sound horse, and then there's the yep. concept of hoarseness. Yep. And all language also then also fundamental to his theory is that all these signifiers and signifieds work through contrast to each other, mm-hmm. right? So there's fundamental contrast within language. For him, so what was more important than, so the parole would be the P-A-R-O-L-E, the everyday spoken language. Mm-hmm. For him, what's more important is the long, the thing that lies behind it, L-A-N-G-U-E, the big broad structure. Mm-hmm. And so this is very, I mean, what, would, what this would lead to, so that was, like you said, a linguistic theory. The way it would get applied to in literature would be similar to like new criticism in the sense that, or informalism with Russian formalism in the sense that what became of interest to a structuralist critic was to look at the way that a particular book was structured, right? Mm-hmm. The genre that it fit into, the, the, the metaphors and the themes and the ideas, the way that you teach literature in, in high school now is a structuralist approach, right. right? Thinking of setting and plot, literary devices, and so it became very concerned with the lang mm-hmm. of literature, the literariness of literature. And so, yeah. So when you watch a movie like the Lego movie and they're making fun of all the other movies that have a hero's journey type story, they're basically engaging on some level in a structuralist critique. critique. Like there's this element that many, many stories across mythology, across movies, across films, across uh, movies and films, Brandon, across literature have had, and we're going to expose this structure. And then in their case, we're going to actually deconstruct it, which we'll get to. We're going to make fun of it and show the kind of the meaninglessness of it. But it is fun to note that I think we basically started two episodes ago uh, or back when we did our first part, I think we started with Aristotle. We talked about the poetics with both, both Aristotle and Saussure. What we have is the notes that their students took. Saussure didn't actually leave behind yeah. A written document. And the science that he produced was called, he called it semiotics. Semiotics, the yeah. study of signs. And so that became, I mean, it was broadly applied. It, it became influential for anthropology. So one of the most famous guy who would kind of take over the structuralist method there was uh, Claude Levi Strauss mm-hmm. when he went in like the Lunch with the Barbarians or whatever his famous mm-hmm. book is called. And it just had profound implications like for psychoan- psychoanalysis would get like Lacan would kind of combine Freudian ideas with. Well, it's why they, it's why people will argue that Marx was a proto structuralist because he's seeing these underlying structures of power across society. People will argue that Freud was a proto structuralist because he was he's seeing these structures of the, the, the locus of meaning doesn't lie for Freud with you and your conscious mind. It lies with these the broader application these broader systems of your subconscious mind and uh, with somebody even like young you know it's these broader combined uh unconscious you know these are systems that we all subscribe to but the locus of of, but the locus of meaning is still with the text right right. it's still with the signifier and the signified Mm -hmm. and the way that these fit into broader categories of structure and so i mean this is an extremely useful way to understand things It, it brings it brings a scientific approach to things Northrop Fry is a guy that people should know his name. He would approach it and kind of uh, combine Jungian theories with structuralism. And he came up with his um, archetypal theory of literature, mm-hmm. which is looking at myth and things like that. C.S. Lewis would kind of fall, fall into a structuralist approach as well. 
it just, I guess the most useful way to think of post-structuralism, it kind of brought like the formalists with their scientific approach. It brought that kind of scientific linguistic approach to literature to give people a framework in which to discuss things. Mm-hmm. Here's like this Shakespeare play works this way and it has these elements and that's similar to this other play that also works this way. So here's what we theorize structurally plays do. And this play is kind of an outlier, but how is an outlier? It's an only an outlier because it adapts and chain shifts the structure of these other things in this way, right? Mm-hmm. And so it gives you a way of talking about similarity and difference within things. But it also it always presupposes that there is, and so this is a philosophical idea, a world out there that's being signified, mm-hmm. right? That there is something, a reality that is being signified. Although it's something that for a lot of structuralists, at least mid-century, they just kind of take for granted. They don't, yes, they're not arguing that. You're right. They don't argue it. Because we, we, we haven't gotten there yet, right? Right. Nobody has been crazy enough to, rec- to suggest, well, I take that back. We're going to add one character in who kind of was crazy enough to suggest that. And he gets rediscovered by these guys and put into literary theory in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But that is important. So just to take then a step back, structuralism So it does this, but again, it's, it's also doing it to help enjoy the text. So if we go back to like the, what I talked about with new criticism, they wanted you to enjoy the world, right? They were really concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one idea that they had, which was adapted from the new formalist, I mean, the formalists was this idea, we've talked about a lot of defamiliarization. Mm-hmm. With the Russian formalists, they were very concerned about how we just live in the world and the world becomes dead to us. We mm-hmm. don't even think about things that we see, like a tree. And so part of the job of a poem and part of the job of literature is to make the tree a tree to us again. Mm -hmm. And it does that by the process of defamiliarization, describing it in a way that surprises so that it gives you the tree again. It gives you the idea of experiencing a tree again. And so structuralism, by trying to find these deep structures to literature, was trying to show you the way that literature has meaning, the way that it evokes deeper meaning beyond the surface. So Mm -hmm. that was the goal. Right. Of a lot of the structuralists. A noble goal. A noble goal, yeah. So some of the um, major structuralists would have been uh, maybe somebody that people have heard of, Roman Jakobson, mm-hmm. but also Todorov, and then the guy who changed everything, Roland Bart, mm. who started out as a structuralist, but then he shifted things. Mm, 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 <laughs> yeah, he's kind of the Darth mm, Vader of literary criticism. Mm, mm. I just read, in preparation for this, I read The Death of the Author this morning. Isn't it a bizarre essay? It is a bizarre little essay. Yeah. I don't agree with him. No, but he's a compelling writer. He is a compelling writer. you got to give him that. <laughs> he tends to use words that have meanings to create ideas that exist outside of all of us which is uh is that from writing degree zero (laughs) or is that from the death of you i think writing degree zero is a weird book (laughs) i've not read it so you've got so post-structuralism as it says in its name is Mm -hmm. after structuralism so it's kind of in its title or in the way that we describe it declaring the death of structuralism Mm -hmm. and how does it do it well it's because in structuralism you have this guaranteed relation between signifier and signified Mm mm-hmm Post-structuralism begins to take apart structuralism by saying, well, what if there isn't a guaranteed one-to-one relationship between the signifier and the signified? Can we uh, color in signifier signified a little bit more? Because I'm afraid people might not yeah, do you have want, got it. Do you want to help? Uh, I mean, I don't have anything on tap, but I just thought maybe we went by it too fast. I mean, so there's the signifier. So maybe an example. Yeah, an example. So uh, let's take a dog. Yeah. The letters D-O-G are the signifier. Yep. The signified is the thing 
the concept of a furry creature yeah. that barks and wags its tail. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that Sasir breaks it down. Like the, even the signifier, so like the signifier has like the part of the spoken part and then also the. Yeah. The part. signifier has the spoken part and then it has like the sound element to it, but we don't have to go that deep. The idea is that there's the thing and then there's, we'll just say the word for the thing. Yeah. And what Sasur does that's revolutionary is to say that there's no inherent connection between those two things. And he points yeah. out that every language has its own word for horse. And so when you say the word horse or the word, I guess we're with dog was our example. When you say the word dog, we've all collectively agreed that when I make that sound sense with my mouth or when I write it down with letters, we imagine a dog. We're aware yeah. of, of a concept of dogness, but there's nothing inherent about that. Yeah, yeah. And why? So, for example, why this would be important is one of like one of uh, C.S. Lewis's friends was named Owen Barfield, and he wrote his poetic discourse book, where he really talks about the way that like metaphor is bound up in words, and not mm -hmm. only that, but like in the sound of words and right. in the meaning of words. And so he had a very he was a theosophist, so he had kind of a magical understanding of language. So he he really like went the opposite extreme where like the sound of words and the shape of words is very much bound up with the meaning of it right. as well, right? And so metaphor and stuff. And I know somebody out there who's a Owen Barfield nerd is accusing me of being unfair. And that's, one, one star, I'm doing yeah. it right now. I mean, and fair, yeah. I mean, he wasn't dumb enough to think that that's all the way that language worked, but he said like in its roots, at its roots, language kind of formed that way. Right. And I think we've always, we've always had, and we've always understood throughout history that there's some play between what's objective and what's subjective in language. But people have always assumed, generally speaking, with, with Plato, that there is intrinsic meaning out there somewhere yeah and that there is some intrinsic meaning to how words attach themselves yep. to the essence of what a thing is saucer changes everything by just saying uh no there's not yeah why 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 would you think that there's no connection and you can see how that just opens up a can of worms yeah okay how do we know then know what a dog is well i guess we know what it's not so and this is how we get actually to structuralism because we're, we need to look at the systems that undergird everything. You know, we're, we're not going to find some primary ontological meaning for, of dogness and we're not going to find some real epistemological reason why the word dog would be connected to the concept of dogness. But what we can find is these systems that undergird everything yeah. and that allow us to find meaning. And actually interpretively, it's pretty important because what that means is that if you assume that, so one language can create, and this is what post-structuralism and deconstruction is going to argue, just meaning that's completely devoid of reality. Mm -hmm. But if there is something out there that these signifiers are signifying, and then other languages can have signifiers for that same signified, that's like biblical interpretation. You mm -hmm. want to find the signifier that closely matches the signifier that was for that signified, mm -hmm. right? Not something that's just pretty, kind of close. Right. right? And so it's, it's, it's an inevitable theory, I think, once people realized as the, through cultural 
ex- the growth and uh, exploration as people realize how many languages were out there, mm-hmm. right? How do all these work, right? Mm-hmm. So the English language isn't the only thing anymore. How does this work? So that gets us back to uh, good old. Yeah, and this is where we begin to get to some cloudy theories because it's always a little bit, I think that what you begin to see with literary theory with deconstruction and post-structuralism, like these guys, I think we're just having fun. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times what they're saying doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like how does this even apply to reality? Like this doesn't seem like the way that we see the world. So these guys are like saying crazy things that have really nothing to do with the way that any of us actually experience life. Right. So I want to put that as a caveat. And that's why I've always been more sympathetic to people like Stephen Greenblatt with the New Historicists who try to push it back to having something to say about the way we actually experience the world. Right. It must. <laughs> because like with Nietzsche, so the guy that I was kind of teasing at uh, earlier was Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche was kind of the proto post-structuralist mm-hmm. because what he theorized was that, um, you know, that, that we re- we kind of create our own meaning that mm-hmm. that interpret that interpretation. What what's this famous tenet that? Well, he's for one, he's the one that Bart is directly referring to when he says that the author is dead. Mm-hmm. Right? He's referring back to Nietzsche's famous "God, God is, is dead. dead." Yeah. But for Nietzsche, facts exist, but it's interpretation that gives them meaning. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and there not you go. truth. Yep. Interpretation is very important, Nietzsche, because it's relative to the person who has power. In other words, it has no founding in a truth or a reality that exists outside of that person, mm-hmm. right? Does it make sense? Absolutely. And so Roland Barthes would run with that idea too, saying, okay, so what we have with the structuralism is we have the supposed meaning of the author, right? Mm-hmm. But how do we ever, so it gets back to this question of structuralism, like how do we ever know the signifier and the signified? Well, can I read the first, uh, I have the first paragraph of the death of the author. Yeah, go ahead. Bar's famous essay pulled up, I think it might be helpful. <clears throat> Quote, in his story, Saracen, Balzac, speaking of a castrato disguised as a woman, writes this sentence, and then he quotes it. It was woman with her sudden fears, her irrational whims, her instinctive fears, her unprovoked bravado, her daring, and her delicious delicacy of feeling. That's the end of the Balzac quote. Bart goes on, who is speaking in this way? Is it the story's hero concerned to ignore the castrato concealed beneath the woman? Is it the man Balzac endowed by his personal experience with a philosophy of woman? Is it the author Balzac professing certain literary ideas of femininity? Is it universal wisdom or romantic psychologies? It will always be impossible to know. For the good reason that all writing is itself this special voice consisting of several indiscernible voices, and that literature is precisely the invention of this voice to which we cannot assign a specific origin. Literature is that neuter, that composite, that oblique into which every subject escapes, the trap where all identity is lost, beginning with the very identity of the body that writes. So there you have it. And the, pro- <laughs> and the thing with these guys is well, when you're listening to it, you're like, okay. But now when you try to take a step back and say, what was he saying? <laughs> it gets a little cloudier, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is where you're headed. But the thing about deconstruction, which is where we're going with all this, is that it can only tear down. I mean, he, did, he just did a good job of rendering this passage from Balzac essentially meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> he, he told us in a pretty convincing way why we actually don't know who's speaking or what they're trying to say. But where does that leave us? And couldn't we turn around and apply the same technique to good old 
Bart himself and suddenly he wouldn't be saying anything. Yes, and he would be delighted, I think. Yeah, and he would. And that's why I think all these guys were just having a grand old time. Yeah, they tend to be humorous, sarcastic, mean-spirited individuals. And that's why the notion of play and game was so important to deconstruction Mm -hmm. like we see with uh, Samuel Beckett. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you may as well have fun with it if you can't mean anything, right? right. If, if all of life is meaningless, if all of language is meaningless, you may as well have some fun with it. And that's really what, I mean, so post-structuralism, it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily really as unified in its approach as post-structuralism, but um, what, it, what it suggests is that signifier and signified are culturally created, that they're just these created things. So not only the signifier, so it takes the post-structuralist, it takes the structuralist way of saying, okay, so cultures create the signifier. Mm-hmm. It says, well, also the reality of the signified itself mm-hmm. is created, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And this becomes- So not just the word D-O-G to mean dog, but the idea of dogginess. These are both cultural constructions. And so deconstruction usually just means that branch of post-structuralism that's heavily indebted to Derrida, Jacques Derrida, mm-hmm. who was um, a French philosopher. And with him, he just argues, here I have a quote actually, the loss of reference causes an endless deferral of meaning, a system of differences between units of language that has no resting place or final signifier that would enable the other signifiers to hold their meaning. So in other words, the way that dog has a meaning is because there's an actual reality of a dog that allows in cat these other ideas to kind of stabilize and have a meaning. Mm -hmm. For deconstruction, the signifier never has a real meaning. And so everything's always, in their famous terms, slipping. It's mm-hmm. always slippage. Yeah. Words are sliding. Meaning is sliding. So you get things like Bart there, who's arguing that there's an illusion of stability, but really, in the end, it's a re, it's a it's a created interpretation. We, we know a dog's a dog because a dog is not a cat. We know a cat's a cat because it's not a giraffe. Well, you just keep doing that. Eventually, you're going to find that it's either circular or... Yes, yeah, so can I see the paragraph the, real fast? Uh, yeah, please. So, <laughs> is itself this special voice consisting of several indiscernible voices? Mm-hmm. And literature is precisely mention of this voice. What voice? That's what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. is we don't know what voice. So, it's, yeah. a, it's a created illusion of a voice. So, all the Western canon, all the things that we hold to is having some special meaning and power to teach... It's all a created cultural device that's always slipping in its meaning. The author himself is a created device. So the only thing you have when you're reading is your understanding of the text. Mm -hmm. And that's where, that's kind of taking Bart's theories a little further than he, I think, wanted to go. But that is where you get things like reader response theory. Right. All reader response theory is, and everybody knows it today because it still has a heavy influence, is that the only response that matters is the way you interpret the text. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you now get the, like, the the cheap and cheesy way of understanding this, but it, every teacher who tells you that, you know, your interpretation matters, mm-hmm. they're really just being deconstructionists without knowing it. Well, it's why, uh, uh, yes, that stuff's annoying, but what really bugs me is when it disguises itself as actual criticism, when it, when it masquerades as some kind of useful academic exercise. The thing I always bring up to, to berate on the bookening is that quote unquote criticism of Jane Austen that Virginia Woolf wrote where she starts by talking about the novels that uh, Jane Austen wrote and then suddenly starts speculating about the novels that she wishes she would have written. Yeah. And that's, and people love that piece. It gets reprinted all the time. It's, it's a famous essay, but all it is is 
just her speculating based on what she likes. Yeah. I mean, that's all it boils down to. And I know she comes before some of this stuff, but it's it's proto this stuff. It's not based on anything besides what she, Virginia Woolf happens to fancy. Fancy. Yeah. It does it does drive you crazy. But it uses big words and jargon, so it sounds like that's right. there's and this thing, but there's just a foundation of air, you know. I mean, there's well, nothing there. C.S. Lewis put his finger on it when he said that clear, concise criticism is difficult. Like it, obscure, difficult criticism is easy enough because mm-hmm. it is al- always hiding a lack of understanding. And so like even there, like when I was reading that Bart paragraph, I fancy myself fairly smart. Mm-hmm. But when you really try to understand what is he saying in that first paragraph, it's not overly clear no. what he's saying. It sounds nice. Literature is that neuter, that composite, that oblique into which every subject escapes. That yeah. could mean 20 things. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's, so that's where you get this new literary theory, this new literary criticism that, and so like you would have the Yale school of deconstruction with oh, what was Barbara Johnson, who was, a, who would join feminism. So feminism also loved deconstruction because, you know, if cultural meanings are just produced, then, you know, there is no gender, there is no identity outside what we create. Uh, I think she's the one, Barbara Johnson was the one who said, you know, she's the one who brought performance theory. I mean, it may not have been her, but you had the idea of performance theory that comes up. All that means is that uh, gender and other ideas are not true historical things that exist. They're just performances that we put on mm-hmm. to culturally signify who we wish we or think we are, right? But they're not real true identities, they're just performances. And so you would get all these things that are related to deconstruction and all these theories that would come out of it. Jacques Lacan would take up Freudian psychoanalysis and he would be the post-structuralist psychoanalyst so that he would say, uh, he would take it one step further, you know, with at least reader response theory, hopefully at least you know yourself. Mm -hmm. Jacques Lacan would say, well, if every signifier is slipping, you yourself are a signifier. Mm Mm-hmm. You're slipping too. You can't even know yourself. You can't even know what you desire. So in his famous disciple today is Zizek, who has like the object petty ah, meaning that um, the object of little a, the, the thing that you think you want is never what you really want. Mm-hmm. It's always slipping. Again, this idea of slippage. So in other words, our deferral of meaning, you always, that's the other thing that they'll say is the deferral of meaning, which means that you'll never quite get to where you're understanding anything. I just picture a caveman with the ice age starting and the world's collapsing around him and he's like running up as like things fall down and he's just trying to stay on ground but he's sliding around and he's gonna fall into the pit and this is how these people posit all of us like the best we can do is keep running ahead of meaninglessness until it swallows us up and we're dead yeah and that kind of is the way that they think of things and i have yet to really find a useful application Outside, so this is more of a philosophy, and it has a lot of similarities to existentialism and stuff like that, which were also in Nietzschean nihilism. It's more of a curiosity like that than it is an actual useful way of looking at literature. Because I've yet to read an interesting Derridian take mm-hmm. on literature. I've yet to read an interesting Lacanian take on literature. Zizek's a bore. I mean, none of these guys ever have anything that interesting that match the way that I understand the books I read, mm-hmm. right? And it's because they just want to have fun with it. And they think, oh, look at me. I'm deconstructing things, man. And you're just like, but what useful thing are you actually saying in the end? And that's, that's, and so that's kind of where, so it started with structuralism, a useful way, giving you categories of understanding literature to getting to the postmodern approach, which is, well, let's just question everything. Let's mm-hmm. just say that everything's up for grabs. There is no signifier. There is no signified. It's all a cultural artifact. 
some of the late manifestations of this, you would get some Marxism would get thrown back in and you would get things like uh, multiculturalism. You would get cultural studies. Around the same time as these guys, you had a guy named Edward Said who wrote his book on Orientalism. Um, in other words, the way that we use ideas of Orientalism to make people feel like the other. Mm-hmm. So he was the one who introduced this concept of the other that mm-hmm. everybody uses today. Yeah, yeah. You know, people who hadn't traditionally had voices like Indian, like literal in people from India. Right. So guys like... Uh, Homi K. Baba, Gayatri Spivak, they would be, uh, they would take these ideas of deconstruction to show how to question power. They would mix it with Marxism to say, well, these people in these literary texts are never allowed to have a voice, or this is how power uses these ideologies to make us seem this way and to hold us in place. But they would then, you know, obviously the deconstructive method then would be to show how they themselves never really have the power they think they have, mm. right? Stuff like that. And, but, so it would get used in kind of creative and interesting ways in the late 90s. This would be the 90s. That's when you would also have the Yale School of Deconstruction who were doing things with feminist texts as well. And so, but that's the life that it's had. And you, and kind of, I guess the branch that it has today would be queer studies, mm-hmm. which is very predominant now, which is exactly what it sounds like. People who are on the outskirts in other words, once Marxism kind of seeps back in with this brand of deconstruction, de- deconstruction that questions all of reality, if you can then say, okay, well, it's all produced by those who are in power, those ideologies of Marxism, then you get that brand of no identity really exists before we create it. So therefore, we have all identities that are up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And that what we're most interested in, especially then, are those identities going back to Marxist thinking are those identities that speak truth to power, that rebel, mm-hmm. that are on the outskirts. And so that's when you get the whole perverse array, the whole perverse plethora that we have today mm-hmm. of things that people like to study, like right. transgenderism and all that stuff. So well, the way that this stuff always works, is it starts in the academy and then it moves into the arts and then it actually overtakes the culture and suddenly people don't actually believe in, you know, it starts with the academics deconstructing sexuality and then that seeps into our arts and into our high culture and low culture. And then suddenly people don't believe in sexuality for themselves anymore. And they're identifying as non-binary and they're having operations for their children. And then the church catches up. Yay. The yep. Gospel Coalition publishes a think piece. Yay. Man, those guys are so, so helpful. <laughs> so helpful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, so I guess what I was trying to show, I think I moved a little fast there, was you had deconstruction and then Marxism slowly gets added back in. Mm-hmm. Like, for some dollop imagine, of, nice dollop of Marxism. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'm, I'm imagining, like, like paint colors getting mm-hmm. mixed together. Yeah, like this, like a this sludgy really, gray. Yeah, and that's what we have today is the sludgy gray that they think is a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, sludgy gray can be whatever it means. But, yeah, so the idea is, so to note, the Marxist roots of it and also the deconstructive roots mm-hmm. of it as well. The deconstructive being that there really isn't an identity outside what we create. There's not an, a, there's not an identity of the other outside of us creating the other mm-hmm. because we need the other to exist. There's not gender outside of us needing to have gender for power purposes. All these things related to power and Marxism and those mm-hmm. sorts of categories. One other predominant theory that kind of came out of this but didn't really have its roots so much and deconstruction is maybe a little bit of post-structuralism, but also post-structuralism would have been the new historicism. Mm-hmm. 
And this came with a guy called Stephen Greenblatt, who was a major Harvard professor and a Shakespeare scholar in the 80s. We've talked about him before on our Shakespeare episode. Yeah, and I like Greenblatt to an extent. He's got definite problems, but kind of what he kind of did was he said, okay, if we take structuralist thinking and mix it with Marxism, what we really understand is that it really does matter that we look at the way a text was created as a historical artifact, which means that we need to care about the author and the way that they were shaped by their culture. And we need to think about the text and the way it was shaped by its culture as well, which I mean, is just another way of saying what CS, okay, it's not really completely, but it is a way of saying what CS Lewis said, where it matters that you understand the historical moment. Mm -hmm. Now, Greenblatt and those guys would always, they would say things like, you know, you can't really know the historical moment because we're embedded in our moment, they're embedded in theirs. But they reintroduce this idea of having to make judgment calls, having to judge the past. So there's some really interesting things that Stephen Greenblatt thought and posited Mm -hmm. that were, um, and there are some unuseful things too. So he's kind of responsible for the um, multiculturalist stuff that happened where, you know, if you're concerned with how things get created historically. Suddenly, you're not just concerned with Shakespeare, you're also concerned with everybody else who was a rival to Shakespeare, everybody that we don't then tend to think about, and why don't we think about them? And is it because they're bad, or is it just because we've created the categories of bad because out of being, you know, Western white men? But bringing that understanding of um, getting away from the formalist, getting away... So when I've mentioned being sympathetic to Greenblatt before, Mm -hmm. it's because there's the coldness of the new critical theories in the sense that they don't care about the history of a piece at all. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think that the history matters and it helps to understand how was this thing created? When was it created? Why was it created? You know, it can help flavor and provide an understanding of a book. Mm -hmm. So anyways. Yeah. So that's kind of the new criticism, the new historicism. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it's, it's a unique duck. It kind of had its own moment. It's, I, I think, not really a thing anymore, but... Um, I mean, it's certainly influential in, I mean, post-colonial theory. Yes, post-colonial. Seeped into everything, yep. you know, children's entertainment, your your Disney movies, your... Yeah. But yeah, so those are the major branches that have led us up to our moment today where pretty much the predominant literary theory would be queering theories mm-hmm. that just want to find those strange areas that we overlook or offer re interpretations of major texts mm-hmm. in a queer way. So it definitely is the predominant champion today. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing I would color in would be just to go back to the beginning of this podcast, when you're talking about the Frankfurt school, all those Mark- Marxist philosophers in Germany, one thing that we didn't hit is just, I don't think we underlined quite enough, just how intentional these guys plan was for the cultural domination of Marxism. They wanted it to seep into all of our philosophy. They had that goal. That goal. Uh, Lukács, who we were talking about, actually became the Minister of Culture in Communist Hungary in 1919 and hmm. began a program he called, quote-unquote, cultural terrorism, his words, where he was indoctrinating kids with ideas about how uh, we needed to throw out sexual education, the, the old Catholic sexual education that had dominated in that country. We needed to have <laughs> sex with who we wanted to. We needed to annihilate our old ways of understanding. I mean, this is, I don't want, you know, I'm not a big like conspiracy theorist, but there was a Marxian conspiracy that 
ran through the 20th century and we are seeing the fruits of it in things like Black Lives Matter. Yes. And you see, so you see kind of the predominant things that have survived are deconstruction and Marxist theory. Yeah, it's almost like the Marxists were just waiting for deconstruction. It's the, it's the perfect tool yeah. for them to tear down the systems of power. And so those are the ones that have survived. And, you know, on the lonely landscape of literary theory, new criticism is now championed by those guys who are dead. Harold Bloom just died. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a weird bird where he championed a little bit of everything. Yeah. So yeah. in his theoretical approach. It but, feels like Carol Bloom, his his goal thing was almost, let me champion something just so I can show that I do it way better than all the idiots that yeah, did it. Yeah. So let me, I'll talk about the canon, but everyone else's canon was stupid. My canon is the real canon. And is a bizarre canon. <laughs> it's some bizarro canon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what have we learned today, Brandon? Talking about literary theory is more interesting than I thought. <laughs> it was fun. It's kind of fun. fun, yeah. Here, uh, just just uh, ending. I, I'm not. I'm not going to demean our patrons by combining them with a discussion of deconstruction. I don't want to deconstruct them, but in one sentence, let's just go through for people. In one sentence, define new criticism. One sentence define new criticism. The text itself is the most important thing. There you go. There you go. It has the locus. The text itself is the locus of meaning. Yes. There we go. Structuralism. The underlying structures of language are the locus of meaning. Post-structuralism. It's almost like there is no locus of meaning. The locus of meaning rests in the person interpreting, and there is no real locus of meaning between signifier and signified. A new historicism. The locus of meaning is within the cultural context that creates the art. There you go. Hey, we use that phrase, locust. The locust of meaning. The locust of meaning. Yeah, people should draws a picture of the locus of meaning oh i would love to see a picture of the locust of meaning yeah what's that novel that uh it's kind of uh b classic uh what is it the day, day of the locust. day of the locust yeah, yeah. never been able to get through it no but. me neither <laughs> <laughs> i've never or that or did that who what is that guy's name he wrote miss lonely hearts and yeah um, nathaniel west nathaniel west yeah mm-hmm. i kind of like his style but i've never been able to make it through one of his True. things yeah he's a little bit like thomas pynchon i Thomas Pynchon's got an interesting style at times, but I still have never finished a Pynchon novel. Yeah, I don't feel bad about that because those things are bricks, but yeah. a Nathaniel West novel is very short and yeah. looks like it would be easy to make it through, but, but it's not. they defeat me every time. He's a darling with some of these theorists, though. Well, there you go. Yeah. So if there's one lesson from this, read Nathaniel West, The yeah. Day of the Locust of Meaning, and yeah. send us pictures of the locust of meaning All right. to prove that Do you it. got all the way through this episode. And uh, yeah, thanks. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support us. And we'll be back next week with some spooky stories. Ooh.